you are loved with an everlasting love. And as the song which, which we've just heard sung so beautifully states, there have been times when we've stepped out of God's will. There's never a time when we can step out of his care. Underneath are the everlasting arms. But I suppose that there are a few people here tonight who have really sort of given up the idea that God listens to your prayers. Maybe you still pray in a sort of half-hearted and maybe desperate way, but you don't see the answers. And you wonder whether God's listening, whether it's really worth it, nothing is happening the way you expect it to or the way you asking God, you've been asking God to make it happen. And maybe you're discouraged about the whole thing of prayer. Well, there's a great problem that God has with you and me, and I think probably all, with all of us at some time or other, in greater or lesser degree, and that is that God, because he loves us with an everlasting love, will not give us less than the best. He doesn't want to give us less than the best. And the problem is that we don't want the best. We have our own ideas about happiness and joy and success and fulfillment and a lot of those ideas we've gotten straight from the world and you know it. And the world is giving us a lot of garbage and bilge and balderdash and nonsense and we have to constantly hold up the notions that the world is giving us to this straight edge, this book. And we can't tell how crooked our thinking is until we compare it with the scriptures. And in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 9 to 11, and I opened my Bible and it came to Luke, and I was wondering why I couldn't find the verses. Matthew. We read this. Is there a man among you who will offer his son a stone when he asks for bread? Or a snake when he asks for a fish? If you then, bad as you are, know how to give your children what is good for them, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? May I see the hands of those of you who are parents in the audience tonight? Thank you. Anytime you have any doubt about whether God is listening or whether he wants to give you good things, just stop and think what you want to give to your children. If your little boy comes to you at five o'clock in the afternoon and asks if he may have a popsicle and supper is going to be at 5.15, your answer, if you're a wise and loving parent, will be no. Why? Well, the little boy thinks because you hate him. Because you never give him anything, right? <laughs> have you ever heard that? 
And if you were to tell him that the reason you say no is because you love him, would he believe that? No. Who acts like that? Nobody but you and me. And that's the way we act with God, isn't it? We ask him for foolish things that look to us like bread. But God knows they're stones. And what God wants to give us really is bread. But it looks to us like stones. And so there's a permanent standoff. I want what I want, and God wants what he wants, and of course what God wants for me is always and forever the best. He never wants anything else. It is his love that disciplines me. It is, it is his love that punishes me. It is his love that says no to those foolish prayers. Now I'm sure that some of you, many of you are thinking, yes, but I've prayed some prayers, prayed some prayers that I know are not foolish. They are according to the scriptures. And I don't get any answers. Maybe God's not listening to me. Maybe I'm too sinful. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough. Maybe you have to be a spiritual giant to get these things. And a dear niece of mine came into my room one night. She was staying in my home and she used to come in at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock when she came in from a date or something. And often she would come back and sit on my bed in my back bedroom and we would talk wasn't exactly my idea of the ideal hour for conversation, but it was hers. And one night, the following conversation, more or less, took place. She told me that what she really wanted was to marry a rich man, not a missionary. And as people often say, it's just as easy to marry a rich man or a rich woman as it is to marry a poor one, so why not marry a rich man? Which rich one? And she really didn't like the idea of marrying a missionary or a minister. And I said, but isn't what you really want the will of God? Well, yes, but I think it's the will of God for me to be happy. And I said, well, so why? But only God knows whether a rich man will be the road, the road to happiness for you. Oh, but Aunt Betty, I'm sure it would make me happy. Well, I said, you can't really be sure about that. And furthermore, you don't really know whether God wants you to be married at all, do you? And she burst into tears. Of course God wanted her to be married. It was the thing she'd been longing for all her life. She was cut out to be a wife and a mother but not the wife of a, of a poor man and not the wife of a, of a missionary. She was sure she wasn't cut out for that. Doesn't Jesus want me to be happy was her bottom line. And I kept trying to explain to her, yes, Jesus didn't want anything else for her because he loved her. But only Jesus knew what would make her happy. Really happy. Deep down three-letter word, joy. And as some of you who have heard me explain the reason for the title of my program, Gateway to Joy, already know, 
I do believe that literally every experience that God ever allows to happen to us, every experience that God gives to us as the bountiful gifts of his love and his mercy and his grace, every single experience without exception can be a gateway to joy. If we accept it from his hands, thank him for it and offer it back to him. He wants to give me bread. He does not want to give me stones. And so the assumptions of these verses that we've read, and incidentally there's another version of this uh, lesson that Jesus taught in Luke, the 11th chapter, and the 11th verse, if your child asks you for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? What kind of a father would give a stone instead of bread, a snake instead of fish, and a scorpion instead of an egg. Would you do that? Do you think God loves you less than you love your child? What is the purpose of my bothering to do a radio program? I get asked by interviewers every now and then. This morning was one example. Down there in Baltimore, I was interviewed on the station that carries this program, and they asked me, now, what, what is your purpose in this? Well, it's the same as my purpose in life, to love God and to make him loved and to lay down my life to that end. That's really all I want to do. And if I didn't believe that there was a possibility of doing that, I certainly wouldn't go to the trouble, and there, it is a certain amount of trouble, you know, to do a broadcast. I wouldn't do it for any other reason. But it is my hope that I will awaken you and encourage you and arouse you and perhaps expand your vision a little bit of what the love of God is. He loves us beyond anything we can ever possibly imagine. So there are three assumptions in this passage. Number one is that the father loves the child. Number two it is that he wants good for that child. He wants the best. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. And number three, the child takes it for granted that he will give. Jesus is simply laying hold of a very obvious human fact. If you, bad as you are, know how to give your children what is good for them, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Now let's look at those at three things that are implied in this little story. And the first is that God does love me. I'm sure that there are people here tonight who did not have the kind of a father that I had. Some of you may have had no father at all that you remember, and some of you may have had a very evil father who did anything but represent to you the love of God. And yet, and yet, the very fact that you know he was evil implies that you know what a good father is like. 
even if you didn't have one, you know what he should have done. You know what he should not have done that he did. And you know the good that he should have done that he didn't do. So we all have some notion of what a good father does. And I have a very clear notion of that because I had a wonderful father. And I have just, yesterday, I think it was, yes, yes, yesterday we mailed off a manuscript of a book that I've written on the subject of the shaping of a Christian family, telling the story of my father and mother and the kind of home that I grew up in, what they established for us. And I think of my father, a tall, rather shy, very quiet, reserved man who loved his children desperately, I'm sure, and passionately, but he didn't have the ability to pour it out verbally. And in our home, there was, a, there was not a whole lot of huggy-poo stuff. I mean, everybody hugs everybody in the world nowadays, and we were just on a college campus in Missouri last week, and this was a question that was raised because I didn't raise it. Some of the kids themselves wanted to know what I thought of all this huggy stuff that was going on on the campus. And they were trying to give me this old line that, you know, it's all just brother and sister stuff, and unfortunately, the brother may be thinking that she's only his sister, but the sister is wishing he was something a whole lot more than a brother, and everybody was sort of promiscuously and indiscriminately hugging everybody else, and everybody was supposed to be feeling very happy because of this, and some of them were not feeling very happy about it at all. And there was not a whole lot of that that went on in my generation, and I see that there are a few people in this audience probably as old as I am, or maybe even a little bit older, and I think you know what I'm talking about, but but next two generations down, they don't know what we're talking about. When we say that our parents loved us, but they didn't say it every day of the world, and they didn't hug us all the time, they didn't kiss us, and they didn't, there weren't any bumper stickers saying, have you hugged your child today? And it just was not something that occurred in our home. Now, it did in some homes in my generation. And when I first visited Jim Elliott's family, I was just floored at all the hugging and the kissing that went on. Everybody used to line up practically at breakfast time and say good morning and how are you and kiss and hug. And then every night before they went to bed, everybody kissed and hugged everybody else. Now, that didn't happen between Jim and me when I was there, so I want you to understand that. Those of you that have read <laughs> Passion and Purity, I was only a guest in the home and I kept everybody at arm's length and that was one of the things that didn't go over very big with the Elliott family. But I had never seen anything like this before. But you know that a father loves his child. There is something about that little, tiny, brand new, red, wrinkled, squalling package that is so awesome and so frightening to new parents, and yet at the same time, their hearts go out to this helpless creature. And I remember the feeling within the first few hours of Valerie's life, here is a human soul, a human being in this world for whom nobody is responsible except Jim and me. What are we going to do? And I was, I was brought to tears with the thought of this child's helplessness and the fact that I was her mother and I could never possibly live up to the responsibility that God had laid upon us. God loves me far more than any human father could ever love his child. 
And I do want to say thank you to all you gentlemen who came tonight. It's just amazing to me that men will actually listen to a woman, not only a woman who talks and matters away, but a woman who admonishes you all the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for coming. But you fathers, you know what your love is for your child and you may not be able to express it in verbal form, even in physical form. Maybe the form is just kindness and gifts and things like that. And my father was a very kind man. But when we begin to doubt that God loves us, and we begin to get bitter because he's not answering our prayers the way we want them answered. Can you imagine how it makes him feel? Can you imagine the hurt that his love experiences? Because the truth is he does love us more than anyone in the world ever possibly could or can or will. When the great theologian Karl Barth was asked if he could summarize all that he had written in his theological tomes in a few simple words, his answer was, yes, I can. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. When I stood by the shortwave radio in my jungle house in Ecuador in 1956 and learned that my husband Jim was missing, my instant reaction was not, why, Lord, or how can you do this to me, or why me? But God brought to mind a scripture verse. I'm sure it was his Holy Spirit that reminded me of a verse that I had memorized. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And I realized then, although I did not know that Jim was dead, that God was saying, in a very powerful and practical way, Remember, I love you. When you pass through these waters, and it was five agonizing days before we knew that the five missionary men had been speared to death, God was saying, when you pass through these waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, You will not be burned, neither will the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God. He's the one who created me and redeemed me and formed me and calls me by name. And he loves me. He wants to give me bread. And when I ask for stones, he lays them quietly aside. He's listening. He's loving me. And he loves me too much to say yes. I think it was Irma Bombeck that wrote an essay on that subject. I love you, I loved you enough to say no. Now think back to some of your more foolish, youthful prayers. 
I wonder how many of you can remember some boyfriend that you were just panting and gasping for, praying that he would look at you and maybe ask you for a date. And you men, can you remember that little frizzly-headed nothing that you thought was the cutest thing that ever came down the pike and you wondered if she would ever look at you twice and if you would dare to ask her for a date, would she reject you? And you prayed. What if God had said yes to those silly prayers instead of to the prayer for this beloved spouse who may be sitting next to you tonight? God knows what will make us happy. God knows what is best. And even if God's answer, which has already been given to you in one form or another to whatever prayers you're thinking of right now, even if that has not given you what you think of as earthly happiness, he's not finished. He is not finished. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now let's look at this idea of good. The second thing that this passage implies, he wants good for me. Now what is that good? Well, you women who set about to make a very special birthday cake for somebody that you love, you want it to be good, don't you? You want it to be perfect. People are always accusing me of being a perfectionist, and I've never in my life understood why that is an accusation. It seems to me that anybody who makes anything or does anything ought to want it to be perfect. If if that's what it means, I don't know. Maybe I'm not a psychologist, so maybe that's not what it means. But if it means that you want what you do to be perfect, then I have to confess, I surrender, I confess to the fault because I want it to be perfect. I want to make a perfect birthday cake when I make a perfect, when I make a birthday cake. I want to do a perfect radio program. I'm sure I've never done one. But I still hope that one of these days it might turn out to be better. Each day, maybe a little bit better. You men, any of you who know how to do carpentry, if you build a table for somebody, what's your aim? Perfection. You want the perfect table. What is God's desire? What is his heart's desire as a loving father for us, his children? He wants our fulfillment. He wants our perfection. He wants our harmony with his own being, which is the only perfect being in the universe. And will he be satisfied until he has brought us to that perfection and that good and that fulfillment? God's love is always in front of his forgiveness. Out there in front. And he loves me even where he can't yet forgive me. And there are times when God cannot forgive us because we're not sorry. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is waiting as a loving father with all his heart pouring towards us, his love preceding, waiting for the child to turn around and say, I'm sorry. 
And back again to the analogy of human parents. If your little child came timidly into your room after he's been very naughty and you know he's been naughty and says, Mama, Daddy, I feel so bad. I'm such a bad kid. I'm such a naughty girl. I'm sorry. What would you say? Well, crumb bum, get out of here. I mean, would you say that? I mean, can you imagine? Nothing would break your heart, even if your heart had been hard and angry against that child. Nothing could melt it more than a confession. Think of the heart of God. People are always saying, he loves me just the way I am. Now that's true. You love your little child when he's naughty. But you want him to be good. And as George MacDonald has pointed out, God is very easily pleased, but not easily satisfied. And when a father is down on his knees on the floor waiting for his little 10-month-old or 12-month-old boy to take his first step toward him, and the little boy is holding onto the chair and standing there, on his two sturdy little legs and looking at his father and thinking, can I make it over there? And he finally, his daddy says, come on, come to daddy, come on, come. Finally, the little boy lets go of the chair and takes one bumbling step and down he goes on his bottom. The father is thrilled to death. He is pleased, but he's not satisfied. Not until the little boy can walk. And that's the way it is with God. He loves me just the way I am, but he loves me enough to want to make me perfect. And he will never quit until he's done it. Any more than the carpenter is going to quit until he's gotten the perfect finish. The absolutely smooth surface and has varnished or oiled or whatever until it is exactly the way he wants it. That good that God aims at is my perfection and my holiness, which means wholeness. A girl came up to me after I'd spoken one time, and she said, Mrs. Elliot, um, like, I mean, well, does anybody, can I ask you a really stupid question? I mean, like, you know, um, well, and I said, sure, ask me a stupid question. Lots of people do. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, I, well, I don't know whether, I don't even know how to say this, but I mean, like, would it be okay for me to tell the Lord that I'll be a missionary if he'll give me a husband? What do you think I said? No. That's not okay. And she said, really? I mean, like, really? You don't think so? And I said, who do we think we are to be defining the terms of our discipleship? 
I'll do this, Lord. Since I think you do want me to be a missionary, I'll be glad. I'll be a missionary, Lord, on one condition. Just like the people who said, like the man who said, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Or the man who, when he was invited to the feast, said, I've married a wife and I can't come. And the other one said, I've bought a yoke of oxen and I can't come. And the other one said, I've just bought a field and I have to go and inspect it. Jesus says, follow me. Never mind what the results are going to be. Don't offer hesitations and doubts and obstacles and conditions. Just follow me. Because he has never asked anybody to do anything in the history of the world for which he would not give the grace. And if the burdens grow greater, the grace grows greater too, doesn't it? You know that lovely little song. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. And if you heard Arlita Winston a few weeks ago or months ago, she told how it was her uncle that wrote the music to that song, and she told the story of how he stood by the grave of his wife, and they sang that in Sumatra. And just for an update on Arlita, she does have cancer. She has had a mastectomy. She is in the process of chemotherapy right now. She's extremely ill. She's lost all of her hair. And when I called her the day before yesterday, she's cheerful. And the first thing she says to me is, all is well. It is well with Arlita's soul. It is not well with her body. So please do pray for her. She's been on my programs several times. Wonderful mother of five grown children and the grandmother of ten, I think, at this point. So what is good? What The good that God wants to give me, can it possibly be cancer? Now, don't get all twitchy and bent out of shape thinking that I'm telling you that God gives people cancer. But God does make even cancer a gateway to joy. I have seen it, not once, but many times. The radiance of a person who is in the deepest, most unimaginable suffering, who knows the joy, the deepest kind of happiness that has absolutely nothing to do with the state of their health. You've seen it too, haven't you? Some of you have seen that. Radiance. Corey Ten Boom, that radiant face, that personification of joy, because she never once doubted in the darkest days of prison camp that God loved her and that God was not finished with her yet and that ultimately he would lead to joy. Perfection, wholeness, and holiness. What is God up to? He wants to shape us to the likeness of his son. If there are any sculptors here, you know a whole lot more than I do about what it takes to make a sculpture. But at least I know that it takes a hammer and a chisel and a file. And God is in the business of shaping every one of us into the likeness of his son. And some of his dealings are hammer blows. 
and some of them are just chipping away of the file, of the chisel. And every day there is that scraping of the file. The rough corners, the sharp edges have to be scraped off and usually it's through other people that God puts us with. He rubs me the wrong way, we hear people say. Well, the only reason that you're in that kind of a situation is because God is rubbing off some of those rough edges and he has assigned you that portion. In July, I had a fall. I fell down the stairs, went sailing out into space and had to sit in a chair for about two weeks and God gave me that verse in Psalm 16:5. The Lord assigns me my portion and my cup. And I said, well, thank you, Lord. I never had this kind of pain before, but I'll take it. And it's so trivial by comparison with what so many of my listeners endure. And the mail that comes through the radio program is absolutely overwhelming, not just in numbers of letters, but in stories, day after day after day. And dear Alma Griffin, who has also been ill, and she's the one that does the major part of the counseling letters, and she sends them all on to me. Uh, she needs your prayers as well, that the Lord will bring her back whole and healthy once again to us. But Lars and I read these letters, and sometimes we think it is the worst story we've ever heard in our lives, and these dear people are listening to Gateway to Joy. And then the next year, next week, another letter comes, and it seems to be worse. So whenever the least little thing cuts across my natural desires or feelings, I think of all these others, and I say, Lord, Give me bread to give to them. They don't need stones, God knows. They need bread. What do I know about it? I know next to nothing. And of course, I don't know a soul in this audience. I don't know your stories. I don't know what you're struggling with tonight. But how thankful I am that I know the one who knows. And he does love you. And he's not finished with you. And he wants your wholeness and happiness. And if I believe that God loves me and I believe that all he wants for me is good, and when it comes right down to it, ladies and gentlemen, there is no good in all the universe except the will of God, is there? When a young man was telling me about his divorce, and I was doing my best to lodge in this young man's mind an alternate viewpoint. All he could say was, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. It didn't work. There was no way. And this is a Christian, and he had been headed for the mission field. And I was trying to get him to articulate what he meant by it wasn't working, as if a marriage is some kind of an entity out here that's going to either work the way your car works, or it's not going to work. It has nothing to do with the choices that these two people who are living together in an intimate relationship make. That seemed to be his frame of mind. And I was trying 
to understand what in the world he was thinking he was going to get by unloading this lovely wife who I thought was just very beautiful and, and very godly woman. And he said, well, I certainly hope to find somebody that will love me the way I need to be loved. And I wasn't happy. I was lonely. Well, if you've read my book, Loneliness, I've tried to show there that loneliness can be a pathway to joy, a pathway to God himself. But I said to this young man, where do you expect to find happiness if not in the will of God? It's not out there. There is no other place of real, deep, solid happiness except the will of God. What does that little old gospel song say? Trust and obey for there's what? No other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now you've got to trust his love. You've got to believe that his desire for you is so good, it is so far beyond your wildest imaginings of the very most glorious things that you can ever dream of, so far beyond that that you that he couldn't have told you what it was going to be, otherwise you wouldn't be able to keep your mind on your work. You know, I really think that's what heaven is like. Why didn't God tell us more about heaven? He told us a lot of things that aren't terribly exciting, like the idea of it being a city and golden streets and a few things that a lot of people just wouldn't think was all that great. I happen to love the wilderness and the mountains and the ocean and not particularly cities. And so you wonder why God didn't give us more clues. He's given us an awful lot, but not enough to satisfy us. We always want to know more. Well, I have a hunch that he couldn't possibly have given us even the teensiest glimpse of what it's really going to be like, we wouldn't have ever been able to keep our minds on our work. Just like a little kid, if you tell him that there's a package up there in the, in the closet that he's going to have on his birthday, the poor little child, he's going to go bananas until he can open that package. You don't tell him much of anything. I've got to trust him. I've simply got to trust him. How many times people have said to me, now, how did you know, how did you really know that God wanted you to go to the Alcats, for example, one of the decisions of my life? I have to say, I didn't know for sure. God didn't give me a star of Bethlehem or handwriting on the wall or a pillar of fire. We walk by faith, not by sight. I have to say, Lord, this looks to be the right direction to go. I believe that this is the answer to my prayers that you would lead me. Now, Lord, if I'm wrong, stop me. But, Lord, I'm going to move in this direction, trusting the shepherd. And there's that wonderful assurance in the book of Isaiah. If thou shalt hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way walk ye in it if ye turn to the right hand or if ye turn to the left. I have to trust him. He has designed me to fit into a particular place. 
He has designed me to do a particular kind of work. It's reasonable to assume that God has given to you the gifts which are appropriate to the job he wants you to do, isn't it? If you're sitting there moaning and groaning and thinking, well, I wonder why the Lord didn't give me this talent or that talent or this gift or that gift or this job or so-and-so's personality or whatever, the answer is because he has designed you and furnished you with the gifts that are appropriate to the job he wants you to do. He knows what he's doing. He's the one who created the universe. And just for a little reminder, in case you have any doubts as to whether or not God can really handle your life, I read in an article called The Incredible Universe in the National Geographic that there are ten billion galaxies. Galaxies. Now, do you know how many stars there are in galaxies? I don't have any idea. There are 200 billion universes, according to astronomers. I get behind beyond 199 billion and I'm lost. 200 billion universes and each cell Can you grasp this? Each cell, and every organism is made up of cells. I don't know how many cells there are in a human body. Somebody here could probably tell me that one, but each cell has 200 trillion molecules. Now the God who knows every one of those 200 trillion molecules in every single cell. Do you think maybe he can handle your life a little better than you can? Trust him. Trust his love. Instead of saying, Lord, please change my husband, please change this situation, please get me out of this job, please give me a different place to live, Please give me a husband. Please give me a wife. Please get rid of this thing that's killing me. Just say, Lord, give me today my daily bread. And you can be sure that whatever he gives you today is the answer to that prayer. Today, when Linda was coming from Lincoln, Nebraska, where she had to from which she had to come in order to come to this meeting tonight. She got to the airport, and it was one hour after the plane was to have left that she learned that the flight was canceled. Part of her daily bread. Part of the lesson in shaping Linda Myers into the image of Christ. And so... We have a Lord who loves us with an everlasting love. He wants to give us only the best. And sometimes we say, My will, not thine, be done. Which do you want? 